Amen, amen. Okay, so we're in this Questions for God series. We talked about, uh, is it okay to doubt last week? And the short answer is, I mean, not really, but if you do doubt, you're in good company, and we do things with doubt that are honoring um, to Jesus. And um, I said last week, as, as kind of get-go, uh, we, we got some questions. Uh, many of you submitted questions. I don't know how many questions we got. There was a lot. Uh, we, about there was a good portion of those were the kind of curiosity questions. So we kind of uh, drew a circle around those and set them to the side, not because we don't care about your unique questions, simply because this is just what we did. Um, uh, the, the other part, though, uh, this heart level question is how I described it, kind of broke down into two things. One was a, a broader question, uh, you know, things like um, the most... Uh, asked question in some form that we got was, why do uh, bad things happen in this world? Why do they happen? Uh, And then we got some other kind of more specific questions. The question we're going to answer today uh, actually deals with that a lot more. One of the interesting questions, very specific questions that we got that I thought was really a heart level question. Let me just get to it here, make sure I'm uh, doing this right, Uh, was this question. You ready? I didn't want to mess this up. If all humans living on the earth, stood equally spaced around the equator, and each swung a pendulum of length L with a charge Q attached at the bottom at frequency W, what would the observed radiation at distance D from the center of the earth in space be? Obviously, you use the Lamore formula to uh, figure that out. In case you don't know what that looks like, it looks like this. For the non-relativistic cases, the simplest um, answer goes like this. The emitted radiation from the source Q, or excuse goes like this. It's Q times A times the sine of theta over 4 pi e to the O, uh, C squared times D. So you're welcome for all of that. Now the question that we're going to actually answer today is even more difficult than this. I mean, that's just... Because, as funny as that little physics question was, thank you, one of our church members, for that. Um, the, the question that, that, we get, that we're after today kind of cuts into the heart of who we are. And the question goes like this. Um, how can I know that I'm really saved? How can I know that I'm really in right relationship with God? Physics questions... You can get to those. These, though, some people struggle with not for a moment or a class period or a semester, but they struggle with, indeed, all of their lives. And I think it's important to address this and address these heart-level questions because um, we need to be different and we need to live differently. So um, in 1 John um, chapter 2, we're going to uh, get to this, this question. How do I know that I'm really saved or in right relationship? I think when most people come to this, they come to it um, uh, at a place where it's not bad as they try to answer the, and, and come up with some assurance. It's not bad. What it is, though, is it's insufficient. Let me give you just a couple of sources here that I think are insufficient sources. Number one is past experiences. Hey, when I was a kid, I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, I signed a card, or I did this at VBS or at youth camp, or there was a moment when on and on and on. I'm not saying any of those experiences are bad. That is not what I'm saying. I am saying, though, it is insufficient um, for actually grounding um, your assurance of salvation. It's insufficient. 
Why? Because some people don't remember the exact day, place, time, with whom, all that kind of stuff, right? Maybe you could go find a card way back when at some other church you went to, or maybe you couldn't. Maybe you, because of the nature of your relationship with God, you've had multiple experiences with God, and you're thinking, gosh, which one was the real one, or whatever. Past experiences are not bad. They're just, they're just insufficient for this. Some people come along and they say something like, uh, yeah, okay, so I, I get it past experiences, but you need to know, like, I grew up in a Christian home. My family raised me in church. I'm connected. There's this family connection, right, where um, because you grew up where you did or how you did or in the organization or with the people that you did, however it may be, past experiences are insufficient, but... Also, family connections are also insufficient. Again, I was raised in a Christian home. The problem with this goes something like this. Um, What happens when your dad, the deacon, walks out after 30 years? If you're rooting, grounding your assurance in your family's faith, what happens when a member of that family denies the faith with their actions? Is this real at all in my opinion? It's not, listen, I would much rather my kids, your kids, everybody's kids grow up in a Christian home and connected to a church. Yes, 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 and one more time, yes. But it is an insufficient source for the assurance of your salvation. The last one may go something like this, this kind of religious rite or religious ritual. People talk to me as a pastor sometimes and say, well, I was baptized, or sometimes I was baptized as a kid, or I was baptized as a baby, depending upon the faith tradition that you grew up in or grew up around. And um, I, I, I simply bring this up to say this, that this kind of religious rite or this religious ritual, it, it is insufficient. Why? Because Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7 looks at a group of people who claim to be his followers and said, listen, some of you at the end of time are going to look at me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name and perform many works and miracles in your name? And Jesus was going to look at them and say this, I never knew you. Because the issue is not whether or not you can do miracles in his name or, or certain works in his name. The issue is whether or not you know God and whether God knows you. Religious rite or ritual is important. It's important. But it is insufficient for the grounding of the assurance of your faith. None of these are bad, folks. These, these three things up here, these are not bad. I'm all for past experiences. I'm all for family connection. And believe me, I'm all for religious ritual and rite. I'm telling you, they're insufficient for the assurance, to to ground the assurance of your salvation. Um, uh, What then do we do? If you say, well, how then do I actually know that I am in right relationship with God, that I am saved, if you will, that I am uh, connected to him and going to live with him forever? And um, God was so kind because he knew we would have these kinds of answers, or excuse me, questions. He's provided an answer for us. And basically, it's the entire book of 1 John. Like 1 John from beginning to end is basically one long philosophical argument from the scriptures um, about, in the nature of who God is, about the assurance. In fact, John even notes this. Can you turn maybe a page or two um, to the right to chapter 5? Look at verse 13, and then we'll start jumping in here. Chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So who is he writing to? Believers, followers of Jesus, Christians, those who have committed their lives to Christ. I write these things to you you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? 
so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants them to be certain that they have eternal life. He's answering the question, can I really know that I am saved, that I am connected to God, that I am redeemed and made right through Jesus and will spend eternity with him? And John says, I'm writing these things so that you will know. So what did he write? Um, Back up to chapter 2 here. If you and I were sitting having a conversation about um, the ground of your assurance for the salvation that Jesus has uh, uh, done in your life, I would take you to 1 John chapter 2, and I would ask you these five questions. That's what I want to do this morning. It is content heavy. Stay with me. We're just going to walk through this passage. You ready? Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He writes so that we won't sin. But if anyone does sin, anybody, does that apply to anybody this week? Just checking. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, that's a big Bible word, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The very first question that I would ask you, if you and I were in conversations about what would ground your assurance of salvation, it would go something like this. Are you trusting in Jesus alone to be your Savior? Are you trusting in Jesus alone? to be your Savior? That's a really crucial question, and that word alone is really critical. Why? Because sometimes um, uh, we would trust in Jesus plus something else, or Jesus and something else, or or Jesus kind of on the side, but primarily in this. Do I trust Jesus alone to be my Savior? Some people deal with their sins. Um, This is kind of our cultural moment and the way that we're attacking it this way, uh, in, in this day and age, is to take our sins and just redefine them. Well, this used to be sin, but not so much anymore. This used to be unholy and unrighteous, but now, eh, I mean, we kind of tolerate this. Here's the thing. If you and I, because of the, the moment that we're in culturally, if you and I are prone to think that way, let me just say, just because our culture is pushing us to redefine sin or whatever it may be, it does not mean that God will allow us to redefine sin. He is the one who has spoken it. His words are true. His words are right. His words are good, wise, holy, and just. And just because we vote or a Supreme Court ruling happens or anything else takes place in our culture, it doesn't mean that somehow then God is displaced or his words now are untrue or unright or, or, or unholy. He is the one who has defined it. He is defining it today. And a hundred years from now, his word will still be true. We don't get to redefine sin. But people try to do it, to handle their sin, to manage their excuse me, manage their sin by redefining it. Another way that people come at this is say, oh, I don't want to redefine sin. I just want to balance out my sin. Like, I got some bad stuff over here, right? Now, what do I need? I got to do some good stuff to, to get the scales equaled out. And so they, they work real hard for a month or six months or a year or whatever it may be to try to balance the scales. And I'm telling you, the nature of our um, sin before God is that it will never balance. Oh, well, I know, but I can do this religious stuff. I, I can come to church and I can give money and I can pray and read my Bible and all of the I can be nice to my neighbors and cook cookies for the bake sale or whatever it is, and it will undo these things. No, it doesn't undo these things. The weight of our sin is, if you will, an elephant, and our best efforts are an ant. We will never balance the scales. We will never. 
And so if we can't redefine it, and if we cannot balance the scales in some manner, what then do we do? John helps us. We trust in Jesus alone as our Savior. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, everybody qualifies. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If you're a writer in your Bible, you can circle that word advocate and draw a little arrow out to the side and put defense lawyer. Because that's what he is for us. He is our defender. He is our advocate. He is the one who, when we stand in the courtroom of eternity, he is the one who will speak up on our behalf. And can we be super clear about something? He is not advocating for our innocence. He would be a liar if that were the case. He is advocating not for our innocence, but for our forgiveness. Why? On what basis would he advocate for our forgiveness? Verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Big Bible word. Jesus, the, the defense lawyer, is advocating for our forgiveness. Why? Because he himself has paid the price for us. Those scales were eternally out of balance. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm not only paying. Propitiation means this. I'm not only going to pay for your sin, the debt that you owed, but I'm also going to purchase God's favor over your life. So now not only has the scale balanced, but it's actually tipped in our favor, not because we're awesome, but because Jesus has done this for us. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do I trust Jesus alone as my Savior? Some people would want to try to add to or um, uh, uh, bring up, uh, you know, oh, well, Jesus, I'm sure you did a good job, but here, here's my good works. I'll just top, put my good works on top, and surely that will do it. But Galatians chapter 2, um, verse 16, the very end of that says this, because by works of the law will some people, most people, a few people, will no one be justified. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. There is no tipping it in your favor apart from the work of Jesus. Do you trust in Jesus and Jesus alone to be your Savior? That would be the very first question that I would ask. Second question, verse 3. He, uh, excuse me, I, that was verse 2, verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. See, there it is again. The important question is not whether or not we're performing religious religiously, the question is, do we know him? By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. <laughs> and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the, love, the truly the love of God is perfected or matured. It's not that, uh, um, uh, you know, some people think about love as emotion. Some people think about love as just kind of gritting their teeth or whatever it may be for you, however you experience love. The kind of love that we're talking about here is this, this love that is a commitment. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But by this, we may know that we are in him, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. So the first question to ask is, do I trust Jesus alone as my Savior? The follow-up question to that is, if that's the case, and he has become, if you will, the center of my existence, then guess what? My life will be marked 
marked by obedience to Jesus the King. So the follow-up question is, is my life marked by obedience to Jesus? Is it? By this, we come, uh, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse 3, verse 6, is my life marked by obedience to Jesus the King? The, the immediate response, and it's a self-preservation kind of response. I get it. Immediate response is, but nobody's perfect. Correct. John, remember earlier, says, I'm writing these things so that you won't sin, but if you do sin. John recognizes that people sin. He, he's, he knows it. But that doesn't change the kind of um, a power of walking with Jesus and how that shapes us. Is my life marked by obedience to Jesus the King? So much so that even when we do sin, we obey in how we handle our sin. We don't try to um, uh, dismiss it or, or um, redefine it or try to balance the scales. What do we do instead? We confess it. That's what the um, latter part of 1 John 1 is about. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can obey even as we confess our sins. Instead of denying it, we, we, we say it out loud. Instead of just living in it where we are. We, we turn our backs on it and we leave it. We walk away from it. Is my life marked by obedience to Jesus the King? Even when we sin, is it marked by obedience to Him? We are not obeying. We need to be clear here. This is what it says. Whoever, uh, again in verse 6, whoever said he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's not you walk this way so that you will abide in him. It's that because you are abiding in him, you will end up walking this way. One more time. If Jesus has become, if you will, the center of our existence, not unlike the sun as the center of our solar system, it has a force. It has a gravitational pull on us that makes us orbit around it. And the, the pull, the force, the gravity, the weight of King Jesus in our lives makes our lives orbit around him. Not perfectly, not perfectly, but it makes us orbit around him. Is my life marked by obedience to Jesus, the King? This kind of mature love shows up in that. Okay, third question. If you struggle, hey, my not sure how I know to know to really know that I'm in right relationship with God. Do I trust Jesus alone as my Savior? Is my life marked by obedience to Him? Verse seven, third question. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment. We'll explain his confusion in just a second. That I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Verse 9, Whoever, what commandment are we talking about? Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So question number one, do I trust Jesus alone as my Savior? Second question, immediately following that, is my life marked by obedience to Jesus the King? Is as the center of my world? Is my life now rotating, orbiting around him? Third question, do then as an expression of that, do I love those around me? Do I love my neighbor? Do I love others? In 
This is especially true, not exclusively so, but especially true of those within the church family. He mentions love for brother, love for brother, love for brother. Do I love others? And in particular, those within the church family. He describes it in verse 7 as an old commandment, this old commandment. So what's he talking about here? It's a love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus is where we originally find that. So the church takes it out of Leviticus, pulls it forward into the New Testament. It becomes the primary shape ethic of the church. So people come to know Jesus and the very first lesson that they're taught is now that Jesus has loved you and you love him back, you get to love others as he has loved you. That is the first thing that they learn. That's why he said it's an old, uh, it's an old commandment that you had from the beginning, from the moment that you received Jesus, you begin to walk this way. But then he goes on in verse 8 and says, at the same time, it's a new commandment. So is John confused or is he trying to reveal something to us? He's trying to tell us something. Yes, it's old, meaning it's pulled from the past and brought into the future. And from the moment that you become a Christian, this is the ethic. What is the new part of this? The new part of this is Jesus is at work in us, renovating us until his love so permeates us that we reach out to others. John uses the language of the light is beginning to dawn and the darkness is fleeing away. You ever been at sunrise right where it creeps up and all of a sudden things really begin to come to light? This is that moment where the love of God has so taken over us that the darkness is being pushed out not only of us but of those around us because he's using us to minister to them and reach them and the light is coming up. The sun, if you will, is rising and the darkness is being dispelled. That's what's happening inside of us. So the question then is, if when I look at my life, do I see a love for others? Do I? If you're looking for a further diagnostic question, maybe it goes something like this. Because the love that the Bible describes here is a love of commitment. And it's a love of commitment to wanting, desiring, if you will, God's best for someone else. I think sometimes I define love, see if this rings true for you, as I love you so much that I want you to agree with me. Versus, I love you so much that I want God's best for you. Those are two very different things. Very different things. I love you so much that I want you to agree with me, puts who at the center? Me. I love you so much that I want God's best for you, puts God at the center. That's how things are supposed to be. So my love for others then has God's best for them in view. That's, that's, that's kind of the diagnostic question. Do I, do I love them and do I want God's best for them? Those two things are, are parallel. They're synonymous even. Therefore, also, just, just to follow that up, do I love them to the degree that I am willing to sacrifice? Because that's what God did for us. That's the kind of love that he gave for us. Am I willing to sacrifice to see God's best become a reality in their lives? That is how we know that we love the brothers and the sisters, those in the church family and those around us. That's how we know what neighbor love looks like is I am willing to sacrifice, give of myself in order for God's best to become a reality in their lives. That's what John's talking about here. And if your, love, if your life is marked by that kind of love, that is a good grounds for the assurance that you are walking with Jesus. 
Fourth question. Verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Fourth question. What is your spiritual trajectory? Is, are you, is, is growth the trajectory of your spiritual journey right now? So um, some people, uh, this is absolutely true, true of my week, true of your week, right? Where if you zoom in on any particular day or any particular week, you might have Sunday good, Monday, bad, Tuesday, bad, 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 bad. Oh, but church, Wednesday, okay, it's good again. Thursday was fine, Friday was fine, Saturday. I mean, you may have any of that, right? It may, it, it may go like this. If you zoom in close enough, I think all of us have a little bit of this. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you pull the camera back. Is your life marked by a movement towards godliness, a growth, if you will, in your spiritual journey. John uses these images. I'm writing to you, little children. What's he say at the beginning of verse 12? And then at the end of verse 13, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And then he says at the end of verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. So spiritual little ones, if you will, know that they are forgiven. And let's never get past that. Like, let's never get over that. Let's never become callous to that. We sing cross songs in here. Let's celebrate the fact that Jesus has had mercy on us. And because of his mercy, our sins are forgiven and we know the Father. We don't ever grow past that. We grow from that. That's what we do. Little children, their sins are forgiven. They know, and they know that they know God. Verse, um, at the middle of verse 13 and the end of verse 14, I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. So you go from, from children, if you will, to spiritual teenagers, so to speak, who are beginning to, to have victory. They're beginning to walk in freedom. They're beginning to overcome the evil one in their lives. And the word of God is abiding in them. It is, it is rooting in them and it is bearing fruit. The roots are beginning to spread. The tree is going up. The fruit is beginning to be born in their lives. You see marks of maturity, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You begin to see these things in their life. Little children know that they're forgiven and that they know God, and then they grow to where they were walking in freedom and victory and bearing fruit for the glory of God. And then he says at the end of, excuse me, at the beginning of 13 and the beginning of 14, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Say it again. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. You move from little children who know they're forgiven to, to if you will, um, adolescents, spiritual adolescents who are beginning to walk in freedom and bear fruit to these fathers. And the one thing that John says about these fathers is what? They know God. On Tuesday, when things are a wreck, they know God. And on Thursday, man, when it's all awesome, they know God. And when you talk to them, they talk like they know God. It's this maturity that says the most important thing, like Paul, like Paul says in Philippians 3, I, I count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus and the surpassing greatness of knowing Him. 
they know God. And they are the only ones who have reproduced, spiritually speaking, who have poured their lives into somebody else. That's, a, that's how they become fathers, spiritually speaking. They pour their lives into somebody else. They know God. And they, they reproduce as a result of it. So do you have a sense that you are growing spiritually? What is the trajectory of your spiritual journey. And if you don't know or you can't tell, this is one of the reasons why groups are so important to be in relationship with people who know you and who you can know so that they can ask these questions and you can respond to these kind of questions and engage with them around these questions. This is an important thing for you to be in those relationships. A a small group, a Sunday school class, some other place where people can know you and help you get an answer to that question if you don't already have it. Last question I would ask. I trust Jesus alone. That's question number one. As my Savior, is my life, if you will, in orbit around Him? Is, is it marked by obedience to Him? Um, it is as an expression of that obedience. Do I love others, and do I have a trajectory towards spiritual growth? Verse fifteen: Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the Pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The very last question I would ask goes something like this. What love do you find has taken up residence in your heart? What love has moved in? Is is it a love for the world? Worldliness? Worldliness, what would that look like? It's marked by verse 16. It's marked by desires of the flesh. Why I desire pleasure, desires of the eyes. I desire desire provision, if you will, apart from God, and, and this desire for or, and this pride, this pride of life. I, I, this is stuff that's marked uh, me. If it's worldliness, that's what that looks like. But just be clear: none of that's of the kingdom, and none of that's for anybody's good. None of that is a, a, a positive thing. It does not help at all. In fact, the outworkings of of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life are the objectification of people and the, the uh, exaltation of means over ends, and we don't care what happens to the people who get trampled on on the way. Worldliness. It's nothing of the kingdom, so don't love it. Godliness, though, it says is a different deal. The opposite of that is our pleasure comes from the joy of another. There's an open-handedness in life. I'm not greedy for something. I'm living open-handed. Instead of living in pride, I get to live in humility. All of the sinful things, the Bible says, are from the world. They are not from Him. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The whole point of that is, if God has been so good to you to give Jesus to you, do you think that you need all this other stuff to really get on in life? No, you don't. And so if the love of the world has taken up residence in your heart, if it has moved in and become a tenant in your life, you can dislodge that, kick that out. And one of the reasons you want to do that is because it's not from the Father. It's from the world. And then he says in verse 17, the other reason you don't want to hold on to that stuff, you don't want to flirt with that stuff, you don't want to go on a date with that stuff, verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires. It does not last. Because it doesn't last. You don't want to um, keep it around. You want to go ahead and get rid of it. You want to be done. One will dislodge the other. Either love for the world will dislodge love for the Father, or love for the Father will dislodge love for the world. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 
chapter 6. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's, you, there's no two ways to do it this way. You take oil, you take water, you put them in that fancy schmancy ninja blender, right? Spin that sucker up, right? When you hit off, it may look like those two things are mixing just fine, but when you hit off, what's going to happen? They will separate. Why? Because even at the molecular level, they are not meant to mix. One will dislodge and ultimately overcome the other. So spiritually speaking, you may think, hey, I can, I can, I can mix this. This is going to be okay. Jesus, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot. At some point, they will separate and one will overcome the other. The reason why I think this is so crucial is this. There are so many great and important and powerful and kingdom-oriented things to do in the world. And if your relationship with him is, is unbalanced or out of sync, if you will, if there's a disturbance in the force in your relationship with God, you'll be distracted as you go about doing those things. Anybody have that moment where you feel out of sync or the, the, um, the equilibrium is off at home, maybe in your relationship with your a spouse or with your kids, like something's not right and affects the way that you see the week and engage at work and all that kind of stuff because things aren't right at home. So if things aren't right in our spiritual house, so to speak, the outside stuff will also be affected. So We come today and we answer this question today with those five questions. to Say, man, if you came in here and you need encouragement, I hope you got it. I hope that today it has settled something for you in your heart. If you came in and you think to yourself, God, I've got more questions than ever. That may be God at work bringing something about so that you trust in the right thing instead of the wrong thing. I'm going to pray. and We'll ask God to settle it in our hearts so that we can do the things that he's given us to do. Let's take a minute and pray together. We'll have one song of response here in just a moment. Um, Lord, even now, I, my sense of things is that, man, you, you've said some things to some people. And so, God, I pray that you would bring encouragement to those who need it. There are some folks here who have um, maybe uh, the enemy has spoken so loudly and so long in their ear that they're starting to believe lies. Maybe um, because of some situation or circumstance, they think, oh man, this can't be right. God, I pray that if they needed encouragement today, that they found it from your word. And Lord, I pray that if anybody's here this morning, they have rooted their assurance on something false, something insufficient and inadequate. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would bring conviction to them. They would root their lives solely on you alone. You alone, Jesus their advocate and is the one who has paid the price for them. So church family, here we are. And I'm asking if, if you need to have further conversation about this, particularly for those who may come in and think, man, I, I've had this question over and over and over again, but I just don't know that I know. I'd love to have more conversation with you. You can make your way to the back. We'll pray with you, set up a time to have a cup of coffee or whatever.
We'd love to be a part of God doing that in your life. So let's stand together and let's sing one song of response. If we can pray with you, you make your way to the back. We'd love to do that.